the space in front, and the Buddha made of light, surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings. Your truth body from the 
Last time we talked about time, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, to continue, it says in brief, on the one hand, there is space-like absorption, one pointedly focused on the ascertainment that all samsaric and non-samsaric phenomena, the eye, aggregates, mountains, fences, houses, etc., do not have even a particle's worth of self-produced existence that is not designated by conception. Okay? So on one hand, there's, uh, you know, we're talking about the, um, the perfection of wisdom. 
There's the space-like absorption, where we're focused non-duly on emptiness. Non-duly meaning there's no appearance of subject and object. There's no appearance of, of inherent existence. There's no appearance of conventionalities. And the mind is knowing its own nature. Okay? So, and you're seeing the emptiness not just of the mind or of the self, but of all phenomena, okay? So whether the phenomena are in samsara, produced by afflictions and karma, or whether they're phenomena of nirvana, produced by, you know, pure causes, it doesn't matter, they're all empty of inherent existence. So it's not that samsaric things are empty, but when you get to enlightened things, they all are uh, solid and concrete and truly existent. No, it's not like that. Okay. So actually, sometimes you hear them say, uh, speak about the equality of samsara and nirvana. It doesn't mean on the conventional level samsara and nirvana are the same. That's ridiculous. Okay. What it means is uh, looking at their ultimate nature. Samsara and Nirvana are both empty of true existence. So that's how they're equal. They're both empty. Yeah. So don't reify pure phenomena that are produced by, you know, bodhicitta or, um, you know, kind of purified karma and so on. Okay, uncontaminated karma. Okay, so on the one hand, there's the space-like meditation. Yeah, where you're focusing single-pointedly. Then on the other end, and you see that things don't have, they always talk about, talk about even an atom of self-existence, as if self-existence were material. But it's not But what it means. There's not even one single bit, you know, of self-existence. Um, and that everything is designated by conception. Yeah. Okay. On the other hand, there is the ensuing illusion-like concentration that subsequently understands that all that appears, that all that appears inherently existent and arises from a collection of causes and conditions does not exist inherently and is therefore by nature false. Okay, so on one hand, there's the meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness. On the other hand, there's the post-meditation time. It's called subsequent attainment. When, you know, you get up and you're walking around and you're doing other things. Or you maybe you're meditating on other kinds of, you know, bodhicitta or generosity or you're doing actions of generosity. In other words, you're not in meditative equipoise and emptiness. And during that time, things appear to you yeah, but they appear inherently existent, even though they aren't. So you're, you're able, because of having seen the emptiness of inherent existence, when things later appear inherently existent, you realize that's a false appearance, that things do not exist as they appear to. And so in that respect, they are like illusions. Yeah. They are not illusions. Now, there's a big difference between being an illusion and being like an illusion. Yeah, because the, the object of the illusion, you know, isn't there. 
that things being like illusions in that they appear one way but they exist in another. Okay? And so things appear truly existent but they don't exist that way. Yeah. Um, things instead are dependent. They're dependent on causes and conditions, on parts, on being labeled by term and concept. Okay? And so you have these two things in, in meditation, directly perceiving no inherent existence, out of meditation, still having the appearance of inherent existence, but realizing it's false, and that things exist, but they exist like illusions. Okay? So that's when you're on the bodhisattva stage. When you actually become a Buddha, then you can perceive the two truths simultaneously. Uh, for a long period of time. And so there's not this mm, kind of contradictory appearance between meditative equipoise and, and subsequent attainment time. Okay? So both Buddhas can see that things exist dependently, you know, and at the same time see that they're empty of inherent existence. They can see the conventional things and at the same time see their emptiness. So until you're a Buddha, you can't do that. Uh-huh. Okay. Insight is defined as the absorption associated with the bliss of mental and physical pliancy induced by analysis through training well in these two yogas. Okay. So what an uh, insight is, you know, the Vipassana, it's the absorption yeah, that's associated with the bliss of mental and physical pliancy, so you have serenity at least, maybe even one of the dhyanas. Yeah. And here, when you're meditating, on, usually, yeah, if you're doing analysis, when you meditate on emptiness, it interferes with your concentration because you're analyzing. Yeah. When, when you're doing one-pointed concentration, you usually <laughs> analyze because the analysis interrupts your concentration. Okay? So usually, if you have concentration, you can't analyze. If you're analyzing, your concentration is interrupted. What, when you have a real insight, which is also the union of serenity and insight, yeah, you have the ability to stay single-pointedly on the object with the, the physical and uh, mental pliancy. But the pliancy, instead of being induced by single-pointedness and stabilizing meditation, it's <coughs> induced by the analysis itself. So after that, analysis and single-pointedness don't interfere with each other. Then the next outline, the way to conclude the meditation is as before with your dedication. And between meditation sessions, as before, read the canonical and exegetical works that explain the system of insight and so forth. Exegetical. Okay. So having trained your mind in the common path in this way, 
Oh, wait a minute. I skipped one little bit here. Yeah. Okay, I skipped a paragraph. So let's go back a little bit. Um, so before what I just explained about serenity insight. So the way to meditate once non-composite phenomena's lack of true nature is established. So here it says, take space as an example. So space, there's two kinds of space. Here we're talking about the unconditioned space, the space that is the mere absence of obstructibility and tangibility, the mere absence of form. Okay, as space has many parts, directional and interdirectional, analyze whether it is one with them or distinct from them. Okay? Once you have generated the ascertainment of non-inherent existence, meditate on it as before. Okay, so it's the same kind of analysis. When you're looking at space, you know, it's an absence of obstructibility, but it still has parts because you have the space in the east and the space in the west and the space where the table is and the space where the chair is. Okay, so there's parts to space even though that unconditioned space is an absence and not some kind of positive phenomenon. Okay, so then again you can um, analyze whether space as a whole is one with or totally separate from its parts. You know, the different places where there's space. And again, you can't find it as either one with or separate from, which means that space is, is dependent. It's not inherently existent. So it's permanent, but it's also dependent. It's not dependent on causes and conditions. Only conditioned phenomena are dependent on causes and conditions. But space is definitely dependent on parts, and it's dependent on being conceived and named. Okay? Then we have that bit about serenity and insight, the way to conclude that in between exegetical texts and canonical texts, read them. Okay. So then it says, having trained your mind in the common path in this way. So the common path refers to what we've covered so far. It's common, it's called the common path because it's common to sutra and tantra. So this, you know, when they talk about sutra and tantra, sutrayana and tantrayana, okay? So sutrayana, the vehicle that is, has been taught in the sutras, and tantrayana is the approach taken in the tantras, okay? So all of what we've covered before are common to those two. So this is something that's very important for people who want to practice Tantra to realize that Tantra is not a separate vehicle unrelated to Sutra. It is in, has all this material here in common with Sutra. And it's called the common path. So you have to master this material before you know, your Tantra practice is going to you know, bring any results. Otherwise, you're just kind of, you know, chanting this and that, visualizing this and that, but nothing's changing in your mind. Okay. So having trained your mind in the common path in this way, it is absolutely necessary to enter the Vajrayana. For thanks to that path, you will easily complete the two collections without having to take three countless great eons. 
Moreover, having received an experiential explanation on the way to rely on a spiritual mentor up to serenity and insight, meditate daily in four sessions, or at minimum one, and gain a transformational experience of the stages of the path. This is the best method to take full advantage of your life with freedom and fortune. Okay, so if he says it's absolutely necessary to enter the Vajrayana when you are prepared, because the Vajrayana can help you become a Buddha more quickly than the Sutra path can. Because in the Sutra path, the, you, have, you collect wisdom, we have the two collections of wisdom and of merit, and they're collected separately at different times. In the tantric path, you can do, fulfill the collections of method and uh, of uh, merit and, and wisdom by doing one meditation. You know, you can fulfill them at the same time. Okay, so it's a different kind of training. But for that training to be really effective, you really have to have renunciation and bodhicitta and wisdom under understanding emptiness. If you don't have those, haven't realized those things, then at least you have to have some good understanding of them. Okay. If you don't have any really good understanding of them, then yeah, tantra doesn't mean very much to you. And after a while, um, you know, you hear, you think, oh, what's the use of this? And then give it up and give up the the pledges and commitments and. And that's not very good. So, you know, no hurry to rush into Tantra. Better to establish a very solid basis for your practice. Okay? And then he's, um, so, in, so in Tantra, instead of taking three countless great eons to accumulate merit and wisdom, you know, if you're properly prepared, you can do it in this very lifetime or in the bardo. But, you know, you have to have practice for a long time before that, you get, you're at that point where that's going to happen. Okay. And then he's saying, you know, having received an experiential explanation on the way to rely on a spiritual mentor up to serenity and insight. So having, you know, an experiential explanation where you hear the teachings and you go away and you meditate and you gain some experience of them, then, you know, in that kind of way of studying and learning the Dharma, then, you know, you should do four meditation sessions a day, or at least one, okay, on the long rim, and, uh, you know, to gain that transformational experience of the stages of the path. And then he says, this is the best way to take full advantage of your life. Now, I don't know about you, but before I met Buddhism, and when I was a kid, I was wondering, what's the meaning of my life? You know, why am I here? What, what's the meaning? What's the purpose? Yeah. And here he's telling us, very plain and clear. Yeah. You do it by meditating on the long run and gaining experience of that. And you can see as you, you know, learn the long run and all these teachings, you can see how your mind changes. You know, you're not the same way as you were before. It's impossible to remain the same way. 
You know, your, your afflictions automatically get subdued when you really practice the long run. Okay, then he has um, a dedication verse. You know? So, uh, the thought of the incomparable master of the cane sugar clan, okay? So the cane sugar clan refers to the uh, Sakya clan, okay? Elucidated by the glorious and excellent Deepankara and his spiritual heirs. Deepankara is a Tisha, okay? And the second Buddha, Jailosantrapa, who is Sokapa, okay, uh, is presented here concisely in order for practice as a method for fortunate ones to travel to liberation. So this is why he put this together. Okay, It's not because he was bored and had nothing to do. It's not because he wanted to be famous. It's not because you know he made up this path. It's he's explaining what was taught by the Buddha that was handed down through Atisha and Jesokapa to him. So it's composed by the one known as Chuki Gelson. By its virtue, may I and other sentient beings complete the practices of the three kinds of beings. So three kinds of beings, it should be three capacities of beings. The initial, the middle, and the great capacity or advanced capacity, which I'll go into in a minute, okay? But it's mentioned here, the three capacities. And then uh, it says, I, the Dharma teacher, Losanchuki Gelson, taught a practical exposition of these stages of the path, the easy path to travel to omniscience, based on my notes to the large and complete assembly of monks at Tashilumpur Monastery during a summer retreat. So when they were doing Garsa, he taught this. Notes were taken at the time. Uh, which I was shown and corrected. Yeah. Uh, which I was shown and corrected. May the ensuing work be a victory banner for the previous never for the precious, never declining teachings. Okay, so it was translated into English by Rose, Rosemary Patton uh, under the guidance of Dako Rinpoche. Okay, so Rosemary, I think, is American. She's lived in France for years and years and is one of Dr. Rinpoche's close disciples. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, so now I want to go back to this reference that he made about the, um, the three types of being, the three capacity beings, okay? So this will be an overview of the whole long run. If you can remember this, take notes on it, and remember it, it will help you tremendously to know um, how all the meditations of the path fit together. Okay. Um, it's also in a chart, I think, in Taming the Mind. I think I made a chart of it there, but you can check. We have a chart that you gave us. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, what we do is we talk about the three capacity of beings. The initial capacity, it will, each capacity has uh, a being who has a particular motivation. Yeah. 
And there's a, a certain meditations they do in order to generate that motivation. And then there's certain meditations they do after generating that motivation in order to actualize the meaning of that motivation. Okay? So, if you, like I said, if you remember this, you can see how, how all different aspects of the path fit together for one person's practice. And then you don't get confused when you hear different teachings, you know, from different teachers and all. You're able to put it together into one person's practice. That one person being yourself. Okay? So, the, the three motivations, the initial capacity being is motivated to attain an upper rebirth, a high rebirth as a human being or God. The middle capacity being, you know, ups it a little bit and is motivated to attain liberation or nirvana, our hardship, freedom from the afflictive obscurations. The high capacity being is, has upped it some more and their motivation is to attain full Buddhahood for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay? So, you can see how those three motivations um, build on one another, how they go from initial to medium to advanced, okay? To cultivate each motivation, you don't just sit there and repeat the motivation to yourself. You have to do the different meditations that will make that motivation arise in your mind. Okay? So, for the initial uh, person, yeah, to generate the motivation to um, to want to have a to want to have a good rebirth, okay, they've already kind of meditated on relying on the on the spiritual mentor and precious human life. So, but they've done that before. But the specific motivation uh, meditations they do to generate that motive, uh, motivation is they meditate on death and impermanence. Okay, because when you think about, you know, <laughs> your death and and that everything you're attached to is impermanent and therefore the, you know, being attached to only the happiness of this life, um, you know, being so involved in the eight worldly concerns, you begin to see that all of that is useless when you meditate on death and impermanence. And then after, you think after death, you know, I'm going to be born according to my karma, whatever karma ripens, and you realize, gee, I have a whole lot of negative karma, so there is the danger of being born in a lower rebirth, you know, as a hell being a hungry ghost or as an animal. And so you become quite concerned about that. Yeah? You, you realize, well, I have this precious human life, but it's not going to last forever. I spend a lot of time in the eight worldly concerns, which creates a lot of negative karma. And if that ripens at the time of death, I go to the lower realms. And it's going to be very difficult to get out of the lower realms once you're born there. Okay, so when you're thinking like that, then what does your motivation naturally become? 
I want to have a high rebirth, how do I do it? Yeah, I don't want to go to the lower realms. Yeah, I, I want to have a high rebirth. So then, so, so you have death and impermanence and the lower realms, those two meditations that help you create the, med the motivation. And then, if you're going to avoid a lower rebirth and have a higher rebirth, then there's two meditations you need to practice. One is going for refuge to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, because when we realize that there's danger of being born in the lower realms, we realize we need help. You know, that we can't figure it out on our own, that we don't know the path, that we can't make up the path, that actually we're in danger and we're kind of lost and we need help fast. So, we go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay. Then, what's the first instruction that the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha give us in order to avoid being born in the lower realms? Yeah, it's ethical conduct, which means, you know, understanding the law of karma or action and its effects and cleaning up our act. Okay, so that becomes all the meditations associated with karma and its effects. Yeah, when we were meditating on refuge, then we contemplated the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We contemplated the reason for taking refuge, we contemplated the uh, advice, the guidelines for taking refuge, all these kinds of things. Yeah. Now, when you know their instruction to us is keep pure ethical conduct and abandon you know negativities, so then we have to understand how karma works. So we under we study the four principal uh, aspects of karma. We begin to understand what the ten pathways of non-virtue are, the ten pathways of virtue, um, the effects, the different kind of effects that karma bring, um, you know, what is considered heavy karma and light karma, how to purify it, all those kind of meditations. So that's what you begin to do there. So that's for the initial capacity being. Okay? So the initial capacity being is kind of, you know, they already, they're setting up a Dharma practice and they're going and they have refuge and the five lay precepts at least and they're, you know, going forward with that. And then, yeah, then they're ready to advance after a while. Yeah, so the next motivation that they want to generate is the motivation to be free of all of samsara. So in order to do that, they have to meditate on the, do the meditations that's going to cause them to have that motivation, because the motivation doesn't come out of the blue, okay? So that to cause us to want to get out of samsara, we meditate on the first two of the four truths um, of the Aryas, true dukkha and true origin of dukkha, okay? So here's where we really get into looking very clearly at what samsara means, okay? So the three kinds of dukkha, the six disadvantages of samsara, the eight difficulties of the human beings, um, 
you know, you get really get into a lot into impermanence, into the uh, filthy aspect or the foul aspect of the body, you know, these kinds of things. And you begin to see, ugh, samsara is not so great. In fact, it's like a horror house. And when you meditate on the second, you know, truth of the Aryas, the origin, then you start, you know, examining, well, how is it that I'm here in samsara, getting bored again and again and again and again, you know? And, and so there, that's when you start to really look at, well, what really is the cause of samsara? What's the root of samsara? So you begin to understand what ignorance is, you know? And they talk about the, you know, self-grasping of a person and self-grasping of phenomena and how that, you know, those two kinds of grasping are uh, the root of cyclic existence and how they give rise to the afflictions and then when the afflictions are present, how we create karma, some of it non-virtuous, some of it virtuous, but all of it being polluted in the sense that that karma was all created under the influence of the self-grasping ignorance. And so you begin to see that, gee, anything that is created under the influence of self-grasping ignorance is not going to be great. You know, certainly upper rebirths are better than lower rebirths, but still, as long as you're bound by ignorance, afflictions, and karma, it's not, you're not going to have everlasting happiness and you're always going to be in danger of falling to the lower realms because cyclic existence is so unstable and <clears throat> the, the self-grasping ignorance is so unpredictable so it gives rise to afflictions again and again and you know our mind is just overpowered by the afflictions okay so seeing that then you say okay a good rebirth was good as a stopgap method, but really, you know, if I care about myself, I need to get out of samsara altogether. It's like, you know, I've, I've been on the merry-go-round, and I've been up on the merry-go-round, and I've been down on the merry-go-round, and I've ridden the horses, and I've ridden the donkeys, and I've ridden everything, the dinosaurs and the dragons on the merry-go-round, and it's time to get off. You know, it's like, finished. I don't want to be in this merry-go-round because it's not taking me anywhere. And it's all just a bunch of dukkha at the end of the line. So then that helps you develop renunciation, which is renouncing dukkha. You're not renouncing happiness, you're renouncing dukkha and developing the aspiration for liberation, the determination to be free. Okay? So that's your motivation. So the first meditating on the first two of, of the four truths is the way to generate it. Then to fulfill that motivation and get you out of samsara, as you are now motivated to do, then you have to meditate on the last two of the four truths, okay? True cessations and true paths. And so here's where uh, under true paths, if you break down the true paths, you can break them into the three higher trainings, 
how you're training of ethical conduct, of concentration, of wisdom. Yeah. You can break the true paths also into the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay. So, um, right, yeah, was starts with wisdom, but not wisdom. Right view, that's it. Right view and then uh, right intention. Yeah, so those um, fall under the, the uh, higher training of wisdom. And then right action, right speech, right, right livelihood, fall under the higher training of ethical conduct. And right uh, effort, right mindfulness, right, con- uh, right concentration, fall up, fall under the, actually, right effort applies to all of them, but, you know, especially mindfulness and concentration fall under the higher training of concentration. Okay? So you practice those, and so also included in those, when we talk about the true paths, that's where we have the 37 um, harmonies of awakening. They fall under true paths, so that's where you have the four establishments of mindfulness and the four um, perfect strivings and the four kind of miraculous legs, the four forces, five forces, five powers, seven enlightenment factors, and again the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay? So that's where all of those come, under the true path. Okay? Then by practicing the true path, and especially according to the Prasangika view, eliminating the self-grasping ignorance, self-grasping phenomena, okay, refuting the inherent existence, then you're able to attain true cessation. Yeah. So true cessation is another name for nirvana or liberation. Yeah. And so sometimes it's spoken of as um, having you know, the freedom from ignorance, anger, and attachment. Um, But what it actually comes down to, what true cessation is, is it is the emptiness of the purified mind. Okay? So the mind that has been purified of the afflictive obscurations is the emptiness of that mind. Or sometimes we say the purity of that mind. Okay, so that's what nirvana is. So that's how you actualize nirvana. Okay, so you do that. Now here, it's talking about actually actualizing nirvana and attaining arhatship. Yeah. If you want to enter the bodhisattva path from the beginning, you don't go all the way through the hero or solitary realizer path and become an arhat and then become a bodhisattva afterwards, okay? It's called the path in common with the middle-level being because the middle-level being will be satisfied with attaining liberation. But a bodhisattva won't, okay? So a bodhisattva is not going to complete all of the true cessations and the true paths at that time. Okay? Because if a bodhisattva does, then it's so blissful in nirvana, 
you spend a long time in nirvana, and meanwhile, sentient beings are suffering a lot. Okay? So the bodhisattva doesn't complete that part of the path. At that time, it com- they complete it in, when they're in the um, advanced part. Okay? So then the advanced or higher capacity being, yeah, this is, so you've practiced, you know, the medium capacity for some time. You really have renunciation, you know, very firm renunciation. Then, you know, you start looking around and saying, well, the world is bigger than just me, and my own liberation isn't so important. And so then the person, the motivation that they're aiming at that time to generate is the bodhicitta, the aspiration to attain full awakening for the benefit of all beings. So how does that person do that? Well, there's two ways. One way is called the the seven-point instruction of cause and effect. The second way is called equalizing and exchanging self and others. They're both done on the basis of um, uh, equanimity. So first you meditate on equanimity. Then you can do one or the other of those two ways to develop bodhicitta. Or Jay Rinpoche also has a way of combining them into one kind of 11-point method. Yeah. If you're doing the, the seven-point instruction, then after equanimity, you reflect uh, first. It has six causes and one effect. So the first one is all sentient beings have been my mother. They've been kind as my mother is two. Three is wanting to repay the kindness. Four is heartwarming love, seeing sentient beings as lovable. Five is compassion, wanting them to be free of suffering. Six is the great resolve, saying, I'm going to get involved in bringing that about. So those are the six causes, and then the one effect is bodhicitta. Okay. If, if you're, instead of doing, using that method, then you're using the equalizing and exchanging self with others method that um, was explained in more depth by Shantideva. Then, after equanimity, you meditate on equalizing self and with others. Okay, you uh, contemplate the disadvantages of self-centeredness, the benefits of cherishing others. Yeah, then you equalize self and others. Then you do the Tonglen meditation, and then from that comes Bodhicitta. Okay? So that's, those are the meditations you do in order to generate the Bodhicitta motivation. Then once you've generated Bodhicitta, then what are the meditations you do to actualize that, to lead you to the full enlightenment that you're now motivated to attain? Okay, then you practice the um, the ten perfections, which can be condensed into six perfections, and the four ways of uh, gathering disciples. Okay, so you have the you know far-reaching or per, uh, perfection of generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude. Joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. 
And then the four ways of uh, gathering disciples, we went over this. Generosity. Generosity. Uh, Yes, pleasantly, which means giving them teachings. That's the last one. Encouraging them and helping them to practice and then practicing what you're preaching and being a good example. Okay? So you practice those and those are, you know, particularly within the Sutrayana path, but even if you're practicing Vajrayana, you do those. Yeah. And then you but then you enter into the Vajrayana path. And there's four classes of Tantra there. And uh, it's recommended that, you know, if you start taking initiations, you do it with the lowest class of Tantra, Kriya Tantra first, because it's easier, and then you work your way up. Okay? And that's the way that you actualize full awakening to fulfill your bodhicitta motivation. Okay? So do you, do you have an image of the late, you know, it would, it would be very good if you draw this, yeah, make, draw it, because you'll have your own mental image of it. You also see within this the three principal aspects of the path, okay, yeah. So you have the three levels of, of motivation, you have the three principal aspects of the path, you can find them very clearly. Yeah, and so then that really helps you when you receive different kind of teachings to know where they fit in your practice. And that way you don't get confused and you don't see the teachings as contradictory to each other because you begin to see that, okay, somebody on the, on the advanced level of the path, they can do this which is something that somebody on the initial level of the path does not have the ability to do yet. Yeah. And so, you know, you see where the Pratimoksha vow comes, either on the initial or middle level path. The Bodhisattva vow comes on the, the, the uh, you know, higher level, higher capacity being. And the, the Tantra precepts, come, you know, at the end with Tantrayan. She began to say, see, oh, these, these precepts are given at different times according to your capacity. So that's why the precepts, you know, encourage or discourage different things because they're applying to the specific things that you're abandoning and mastering at that level of the practice. Okay, so it really helps you to, to not see things as contradictory, to see it as a whole path that you can practice from beginning to end. You know? And it helps us also look, and when we're honest, to see exactly where we are on the path. Okay? I don't know about you, but I'm at the initial level group. Okay. Now, while we're at the initial level being, we still can do the meditations of the medium and higher level beings in order to familiarize ourselves with those meditations. Because the more familiar we are with them, 
then when it's, we have the ability to actually realize them, already there's many imprints in our mind and it'll be much easier for us to realize them. Okay? Also, you know, when, when you do all of the meditations, you know, through the cycle, then you begin to really see how they help each other. Yeah? That even though the advanced level practices are more advanced, you get some understanding of them, and that inspires you, although you're a person on the initial level, to appreciate your precious human life and to not want to get completely overwhelmed by the eight worldly concerns because you can begin to see, wow, I have the potential to, to, to master these qualities of the high capacity being and those are really wonderful so I don't really want to mess around with the eight worldly concerns anymore. Okay? So it helps you as you do, you know, as you cycle through all these meditations, you, one, they all help, kind of help each other, yeah? Because you meditate on death and impermanence, and you see, wow, I'm going to die, you know, and I don't know when, and I don't know how much time I have, yeah? And what's important to me is practicing the Dharma. But I'm not going to practice just the initial level practice, I want to really put some seeds of the higher level practices in my mind stream, even maybe sometime when I'm okay with it, the seeds of Tantra, so that I have some familiarity with all of these things. Yeah. So your meditation on precious human life or on impermanence and death will inspire you to, you know, meditate to want to attain real renunciation and real bodhicitta. Meditating on the middle level of the path will help, will inspire you to accomplish, you know, uh, to have a precious human life or, or good rebirth next time around. Because you see that if you're going to get out of samsara, the motivation of the middle level being, you have to have a series of good rebirths that act as the basis to do it. Act and absolute, when you meditate, you know, on the meditations of the middle level being, you're meditating on them in terms of yourself, the dukkha of samsara, the origin of the dukkha, and so on. When you, as you begin to see those in terms of yourself, then you also say, well, wait a minute, everybody else is subject to the same thing. And so then that inspires you to want to meditate on bodhicitta. Okay? So you, when you do these, you see that they all inspire you to do the others. Okay? And so you want to really kind of keep some familiarity with them, even though you may put more emphasis at the level of the path where you presently are. Yeah? But when you're at the initial level or the medium level, it's called the practice in common with the initial level being, the practice in common with the middle level being, is said in common with because you're not only that level being because you're already from the get-go putting imprints of bodhicitta in your mind. 
So you're just practicing in common with those beings. You're not practicing their actual path and being satisfied with getting a good rebirth, for example, or getting out of samsara, for example. Okay? Because you'll see there's some people that really, the way they think, they're definitely initial level beings. They don't go any further than that. They're completely, I need to create merit so that I can have a good life. And that's all they think about. They don't think about liberation. Yeah, they don't have that kind of self-confidence or that expansiveness in their mind. They only think about creating the karma for a good rebirth. Yeah. So that's wonderful. But we're practicing in common with them. So we're not limiting our motivation to just that initial level being's motivation. We're going in there with the thought in the back of our mind of, I want to become a bodhisattva, I want to become a Buddha. So I'm practicing in common with this, but I'm going there. So it's kind of like, you know, being in, in first grade. You can either be somebody who thinks, I'm in first grade, and my goal is to finish first grade, and I really can't think much beyond that, you know? Yeah, that, that's it. I just want to finish first grade, learn to read and write for first grade level. That's it. You know, and they focus on that, and they do that. That's different than somebody who says, they're still five or six years old, somebody who says, actually, you know, I want to be, a, you know, a rocket scientist, or I want to be, um, you know, somebody who does incredible work in hospice and completely changes the field, or I want to be somebody who, you know, makes a positive contribution uh, to society, you know, through reorganizing the social structure or something, you know. So you have this vast goal, but you still, you're, it's still in the same class with the kid who just wants to master first grade. But you have a very different motivation. Okay? So you're still doing the same ABCs, but the way you're doing the ABCs is a little bit different because of the vastness of your ultimate aim. Okay? Yeah. So that's why it's called in common with. You're not an actual person of it. Or in common with the middle, you know, level being. We have the bodhicitta, but we're meditating on the four, the four truths of the Aryas. And this is different than somebody who is an actual middle level being who wants to get out of samsara and they're not thinking about enlightenment, they're not thinking about other sentient beings, although it would be nice, I mean they're not they're not horrible, selfish, you know, but they're just not devoting their life to sentient beings. But they have love and compassion, they're kind people, they want to get out of samsara. Wonderful motivation. Yeah. But as as aspiring bodhisattvas and aspiring Buddhists, we're practicing the path in common with them. We're not practicing the middle level path, 
because we don't want to just attain nirvana. Yeah, we want to go further. Okay? So we practice in common with the initial, in common with the middle. The higher level, we practice. There's no in common with. Okay? You just do it. And so because, you know, we have from the very get-go this broad aspiration, then it's very good on a daily basis to recite one of the glance meditations that go through all the stages of the path from the beginning to the end. Okay? Because that way we plant in our mind just by... The, the, the glance meditations are very short. You know, you have um, the foundation of all good qualities. You know, one page, you know, a couple of pages, depending on what size paper. The, the three principal aspects of the path, 37 uh, practices of bodhisattvas. The uh, long run prayer at the end of the Lama Chopa. Okay? There's many of these kind of, of prayers. Yeah? So it's good on a daily basis to recite them. Because then every day you are putting the seeds of all of those realizations into your mind. You know? And so even you're just reading the prayer, you know, that's talking about overcoming uh, self-centeredness. And that's not the main meditation you're doing that day. It's still like, because you're reading that and you're saying that, it's like, yeah, i got to be careful of my self-centeredness today. It's going in the mind. Okay? Okay, so before we do questions, I want to start at the very beginning. If I can ever get back there. And um, just read the, the um, beginning verses, because that's a habit that we have. Or a tradition we have to start the text over again and then just reading a little bit and not finishing which indicates that you have to come together again to finish it okay so it's the easy path to travel to omniscience by pension Lothan Chuki Gelfin at the feet of the venerable and holy masters indivisible from Shakyamuni Vajradhara, I pay homage continuously. With your great compassion, I pray to you to care for me. The exposition of the stages of the path to awakening, the profound method dealing, leading fortunate beings to Buddhahood has two parts. One, how to rely on spiritual mentors, the root of the path. Two, having relied on them, how to progressively train your mind. The first has two parts. One, how to contact, how to conduct the actual meditation session. Two, what to do between meditation sessions. The first part of that has three parts. One, the preliminaries. Two, the actual meditation. Three, the conclusion. Okay, so for one, the preliminaries. In a place you find pleasant, sit on a comfortable seat in the eight-pointed posture or in whatever position is comfortable. Then examine your mind well, and in an especially virtuous state of mind, think. In the space in front of me, on a special throne, both high and wide, 
supported by eight great lions on a seat of multicolored lotus, moon, and sun disk, is my kind main spiritual mentor in the form of the conqueror Shakyamuni. The color of his body is pure gold. On his head is the crown protuberance. He has one face and two hands. The right touches the earth, the left in the meditation posture uh, holds the alms bowl full of nectar. Elegantly, he wears the three saffron-colored monastic robes. His body, made of pure light and adorned with the signs and marks of a Buddha, emanates a flood of light. Sitting in Vajrapasit posture, he is surrounded by my direct and indirect spiritual mentors, by deities, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas, heroes, heroines, and an assembly of uh, Arya Dharma protectors. In front of him, on exquisite stands, are his teachings in the form of the books of light. Books of light. The members of the merit field look at me with great contentment. In turn, at the thought of their compassion and virtue, I have great faith in them. Okay. So you can see this text was really written for meditation, right from the beginning. There's your fit you know, your visualization. And then the next verse is the motivation for doing the practice. So he wrote this really, uh, you know, in the hopes that people would meditate on it. Yeah. Okay. Questions? Comments? Yeah. Um, so we're talking tonight about uh, practicing where you are, but also doing things for the future of planting seeds. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering um, what you think, like, okay, so every day we do these practices to plant seeds. Maybe we're not so capable of them yet. So if we were dying, which would you focus on? Because <laughs> it seems like it's such an opportunity then, even though you don't have accomplishment, mm -hmm. that you have the potential that your mind might be more subtle. You should, if you have any wherewithal, try to do the meditations on emptiness. Yeah. So your, your question is um, that we familiarize ourselves with all these topics. We may not have realized any of them when we die. So what do we meditate on at death? If you can meditate on emptiness, fantastic. If you can't do that, um, meditate on do the taking and giving meditation. And if you do meditate on emptiness, Motivate beforehand to do to do it with bodhicitta motivation. Okay, if you can't do bodhicitta or um, or meditation on emptiness, you know, if then the best thing to do is take refuge and meditate on your meditate your spiritual mentor and the deity as having the same nature and really taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha and, uh, you know, with strong aspiration never to be separated from the Buddha Dharma Sangha in any of our lifetimes. Yeah. And then you aspire for to have a good rebirth or to be reborn in the pure land. You know, so you set a strong intention for where you want to be reborn. So since when we die, we're basically, you know, we're habit, creatures of habit, yeah? So if we want to die, 
meditating on any of those things. We have to familiarize ourselves with them now, and we have to make those kind of aspirations and dedication prayers now. It's not that we just kind of go around our life, you know, blah, you know, doing whatever, having a good time, and then, you know, oh, mm, looks like I'm going to die soon. I better get some familiarity with these things. Yeah. Here we're not. Because we can see already when we're human beings now, we're healthy, we're well fed, we're not actively dying. We can see how hard it is to practice and control our mind right now. You know, do we think that by not practicing during our life and then waiting until we die, that suddenly we're going to have good concentration and be able to focus on these topics? You know, no. And even some people think, well, I'll chant Namo Amitofo. But if you can't even remember to chant Namo Amitofo while you're alive, and if you can't visualize Amitabha when you're alive, if you don't know who Amitabha is, yeah, and what Amitabha's qualities are, and what the path is to become Amitabha, then at the time of death, are you going to be able to remember to chant Namo Amitofu? Or even you remember it, are you going to have any idea like what in the world you're aiming for? Yeah, no, you're going to sit there and think, you're going to be filled with regret and think about all the things that you did during your life that you regret having done and you didn't purify. Yeah. So, you know, we shouldn't even count on the pure land as like the last ditch practice after having messed around all life. Yeah. No, because even if you're going to do that practice, you have to have practiced it while you're alive. And to have an understanding of who Amitabha is and what the path to be born there is. So then you might think, well, okay, even if I don't that, do that, all my friends and relatives will do so many prayers and practices for me after I die. They'll do the chanting, even I can't remember. They'll do the chanting. They'll make offerings. They'll have pujas arranged for me. Well, that's good for our friends and relatives. They'll create a lot of merit from doing that. But what about our mind? It, it'll send some good vibes our way, but if we haven't practiced while we're alive, are we even going to recognize those good vibes and that merit that they're sending our way? Or is our mind going to be, you know, overwhelmed by all sorts of other stuff simply because during our life, we made a habit of our mind being totally distracted by all sorts of other stuff. Yeah? So we can't just say, well, my friends and relatives will do all this after I die. It's good they do that. It's beneficial that they do that. But for us to reap the benefit of what they're doing, we have to practice when we're alive. And so people always say, well, how can I help my friends and relatives when they're dying? I say, help them when they're alive first. Don't wait until they die. Yeah, help them when they're alive. Encourage them to be generous. 
encourage them to keep good ethical conduct. And, you know, teach them the methods so that they can transform how they look at situations and not get so angry. Encourage them to go to Dharma talks and read Buddhist books. You know, introduce them to something virtuous that will they can, you know, put in their mind while they're alive. Help them to create virtuous actions. That's the best way to help them. Some of our friends and relatives have no interest in this. What do you do? What can you do? You know? Maybe you just then talk about how, how wonderful the Dalai Lama is because they saw the Dalai Lama on TV and they know who he is and so you can talk about his, his qualities and that puts some good imprint in their mind. Maybe with some people that's all you can do. And some people may not even want to hear about the Dalai Lama. Yeah. yeah. So the people who do a lot of mantras, but they don't study much, but, a lot of faith, yeah. but they do a lot of praying and they have great devotion and faith, okay? They pretty much go on the initial capacity being, yeah? Because basically they're, they have devotion and faith and usually their, their prayers are for a good rebirth but that's what they really want. They may have higher aspirations, but they don't understand it really well, but still that's good that they have higher aspirations. Yeah. But um, the, the basic thing is the more you understand, the better you can practice. And so to understand, you have to hear teachings and study. Yeah. But still people, sometimes, you know, who you look at people who have tremendous faith, yeah, and they practice very good ethics, Conduct, yeah, based on the faith they have, and that's really beautiful. And sometimes their ethical conduct is better than the ethical conduct of the people who study aloud a lot and think that they're very fantastic because they know a lot of words. Okay, so sometimes you know you see those people with so much faith and devotion, and it kind of makes you, as somebody who studied a lot, go, hmm, you know, do I even have that level of faith and devotion? Or am I just kind of puffed up because of, you know, what I know? Am I really practicing anything? Does that answer your question okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, how much of a feeling do we need to get for each type of meditation? Uh, for instance, impermanence and death, before we go on to the next meditation. Okay. So like I said, you need to go through all of them and keep cycling through all of them before you go from one to the next in terms of your emphasis. For precious human life, they say that you have to feel like a beggar who just found a jewel. That that's how you have this awareness of how valuable your life is. You know, for death and impermanence, you feel like 
You know, my death is definite. I don't know when. It could be any time soon. And, you know, I need to practice purely in order to be prepared for it. So basically, you know, what, what you need to have to go on to the next one, in the, if you're doing this in terms of ex, the experiential teachings, is everything that you're saying to yourself, you know, as you're doing those meditations, you have a gut feeling of those. No, you don't, you only take tantric precepts when you take, uh, not even the, the first two of the four, uh, you don't even take tantric precepts with Kriya and Charya Tantra. It's only with Yoga and Highest Yoga Tantra. And you can't know the precepts before you take them, so you certainly can't observe them before you take them. And you only take them when you take those levels of initiation. And His Holiness advises that you get some familiarity with this whole path that we've gone through and that you've been a Buddhist at least five years before you even take the low-level tantric initiations, let alone the higher level ones. Being um, someone who's practicing common with the initial middle scope, what do you do with four ways to gather disciples? It seems to be kind of a funny little add peace. I mean, they're lovely qualities to have just generally as a practitioner, but uh-huh. what, what would be the purpose for us to even, what context? Okay, so if you're um, an initial level being, then why in the world are you meditating on the four ways to gather disciples? It doesn't mean that as an initial level being you're gathering disciples. It means that you're familiarizing yourself with the qualities so that you know what the qualities are, so that when it's time to do that, you have that in mind. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful qualities, I just never could understand the context, because even in the long run, when we, we study, we get into the six far-reaching practices, and then we, we don't have it as ever part of the the long room, the advanced level. I was just wondering where that came yeah. from. Yeah, no, it's in the advanced level. And the long room yes. cycle through, I don't see. It may not be in, in our outlines because our outlines are abbreviations. But in the commentaries on the long room. Yeah, we went through it right in here, okay. you know, right after the six uh, perfections and right before serenity and insight in particular, it was there. Um, in the outline that we use here, mm-hmm. um, the meditations on emptiness are in the higher. Level. Yes. And is that because the bodhisattvas are not, because it's geared towards the bodhisattva? Yes, it's geared towards somebody who's following the bodhisattva path. Where here, in what you were just No, it's the same as here. In the middle level, it comes from the middle level being. But remember I said that the bodhisattva doesn't necessarily practice it there. They practice it later. That doesn't mean that you never meditate on emptiness until you've actualized bodhicitta. Okay, it doesn't mean that. Okay, but it just means that you're not attaining the true cessation as part of the middle, you know, the middle level motivation because your final motivation is the bodhisattva one. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
What is the purpose of offerings to the Buddhas? How should we feel when we do this? Okay, the purpose of offering to the Buddha is, um, there's many purposes. It creates a connection with us and the Buddha. Because you visualize the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you know, you, you have all these offerings, not just physical ones, but the mental ones you create, that you imagine, you might be offering an apple, but you imagine the whole sky full of offerings and things like that. So it creates a connection with the triple gem. It, it creates a lot of merit because you're being generous. It creates, and making offerings, it creates the mind that takes delight in giving, which is a virtuous state of mind. Okay? So um, we should be thinking like with a really happy mind because you're creating all this beauty. Yeah? I mean, when you make offerings, it makes your mind actually very happy because you're visualizing here all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in front of you in their pure land, and you're imagining all these beautiful objects, and here you are offering them to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It's this beauty, you're creating an image of incredible beauty that makes your mind very um, inspired and very light. And then, you know, you're having delight in being generous. If you really make offerings in the, in the real a special way, you generate bodhicitta before you make the offerings, you contemplate emptiness after you make the offerings, you bring the entire long rim into the practice of making the offerings. Yeah. So it's not just going up to the altar and putting some apples and oranges there. Yeah, it's much more than that. Please accept these with compassion for the sake of migrating beings. 
Having accepted them, please bestow on me and on the mother sentient beings abiding as far as the limits of space, your inspiration with loving compassion. This ground Especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West. Oh. 